I am a black belt and I can kill you. When growing up, whether it was fifth grade, 10th grade, or college, when somebody found out that I was in Taekwondo, that question would almost always follow, can you kill me? My parents put me in Taekwondo in the second grade to boost my confidence after a series of times when I was beat up at the bus stop down the street by Alex Stratakos, the troubled young man in the neighborhood. The black belt is a symbol of what I can do to you. Other activities have their wearables, a ring for the NBA championship or a green jacket for the Masters golf tournament or a bronze, silver or a gold medal for the Olympics. Some awards go on the wall. Rachel Ranger, the older sister of my buddy Brad across the woods growing up, we would look in her bedroom and from wall to wall, from floor to ceiling were gaudy ribbons. Rachel could ride a horse. Lots of horse racing competitions that she'd won. Some of you have degrees on your wall. All of these things are meant for showing off. All of these things are designed to communicate. And perhaps a trophy is the best example of this. Well, the church is God's trophy. The church is God's trophy. It's his way of showing off what he's like and what he can do. Its very existence is evidence that God does the impossible. It's proof that he's God and of the kind of God that he is. And it's proof that no one, invisible or visible, is any match for him. The Ephesian believers needed to hear this. They were saved from a life of worshiping the local goddess, Artemis, and of trying to manipulate the invisible powers that controlled the world through spells and recipes and incantations. Leaving all of that behind, how would they know that they were safe? God is over all of things, visible and invisible, and his power is enough. Last week, we praised God for his incredible plan, a plan designed, carried out, and secured by our triune God. A plan that brings to us every spiritual blessing. A plan which brings meaning to history and harmony to the whole universe in Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. Everything will be united to him and it will be properly under his feet. And the church is a foretaste of that time to come. And this is the revelation of God's mystery. This week we will grow to see just how incredible this plan really is by seeing just how impossible the church really is. The obstacles that have been overcome to make the church possible really are impossible apart from God and the power that only he possesses. So please open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This sermon is from Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. We're going to begin by reading the first 13 verses of this third chapter. It was only 25 minutes before the first service when in a pre-service meeting with Ron Giese, uh, he thought that I was preaching on just chapter 3 today and when he found out it was 2 and 3, laughed in my face. Uh, it was totally involuntary. It was a genuine laugh at the thought of trying to do this, but we're going to do it. We will show Ron. Paul's life is bound up with the life of his readers, and here we get an insight into his life and theirs together. 
Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Here Paul has told us what his life and ministry is all about. The sermon will come in three parts. First, the making of an apostle, this section right here. Then the making of the church, chapter two. Then another prayer for God's power the end of chapter three. The first half of this chapter three describes the making of an apostle, verses one through 13, which we've just read. Paul says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He was put in prison by the emperor Nero on account of Christ, and this is from where Paul writes this letter. But it wasn't a mere human imprisonment, as nothing in the Christian life is ever merely Human, Paul was first a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is to Paul savior and prison master. Paul's relationship to Jesus as ours is not one dimensional. So what is this prison program all about of Jesus's? What is Jesus's prison program all about? And that's a good question for How can God, who is victorious over all things seen and unseen and powerful over heaven and earth, how can his messenger, which is what apostle means, be in chains? Isn't prison, after all, something of a defeat? Isn't it a sign of weakness? One is held. What is Jesus' prison program all about? Well, first, Paul's imprisonment is for his readers. Look at how this section begins and ends. He begins by saying in verse one, he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he wraps up this section with this comfort. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's imprisonment is for his readers. Second, Paul's imprisonment is because of his message. Paul says he was given, verse 2, a stewardship of God's grace from them in the form of a mystery. And this is the mystery, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs through the gospel. Paul mentioned this mystery in the first chapter when he said God's plan from all eternity is to unite all things in Christ. 
And now his mystery comes into sharper focus. At the center of God's plan to exalt Christ and unify the universe is a church. And that church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. That is Jews, sons and daughters of Abraham, children of Abraham, and the nations, everyone else, which is what Gentiles means. But exactly how God would do this was not always clear, even though there are hints and suggestions and indications sprinkled throughout the Old Testament that should have been taken up by the observant and attentive reader with ears to hear. Now in Christ, though, it is all clear. Now through Paul and the apostles, all of the details of God's plans are declassified for all to see in plain view. This is Paul's message, and it's making a lot of people angry. Paul, like anyone, as anyone, could relate. Turn with me to Acts chapter 26. In the book of Acts, we have three accounts of Paul's conversion story. We watch it happen, and then we see Paul give an account twice to Roman authorities of what happened to him. Acts chapter 26, defending himself before the Roman authorities, He told the story of his life and his own conversion happened when he was on his way to imprison Christians for the very thing that he was now in prison for. He knows how provocative this message is. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." One day, Paul sought authority from the chief priests to imprison Christians in Damascus. And when he was on the road to Damascus at about noon, he says, he met Jesus Christ. And what should have been the biggest, oh crap, if we can say it moment, was exactly the opposite. What should have been a lightning bolt was the light of salvation. Verse 13, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, verse 15, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Verse 18, to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is Paul's salvation and commission by Jesus. And he has a message for the nations from Israel's God. And I love the response, verse 24, Festus with a loud voice. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Back to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's imprisonment is for his readers. His imprisonment is because of his message and his imprisonment is about showing off God's power. 
It's about showing off God's power. This seems counterintuitive. How is God shown powerful when his man is in prison? But this is an irony that pervades the whole Bible's story. God's strength shown in weakness. It's certainly a theme in Paul's life and letters. It was in Jesus's. Imagine a cross. Paul writes from a hard floor of a Roman prison, but with the humble heart of a prisoner of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. A prison cell is no threat to the power at work in the Apostle Paul. He knows how unworthy he is to carry this message and he knows how incredible and unstoppable the message that he carries is. His job, verse 8, is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is in prison, but God is not in prison, and his plan is not chained, and his gospel is not held back. Proof of this is the very life of his readers. Indeed, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. But if we think about it for a moment, while that sounds very nice, maybe we wonder how that actually works. If I wanted to confound Satan and I was God, I'd probably perform an insanely awesome miracle. I would make something downright amazing, or better yet, I would just soundly defeat Satan. But Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. It's through the church that God confounds his enemies. It's through the church that God proves his strength. How? The answer, I pray, before the end of our sermon will bring us to our knees. Turn with me to chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We've seen the making of the apostle and now we see the making of the church. We've seen the anatomy of Paul's salvation as an apostle and now we see the anatomy of our salvation as a church. And as we will see, the story of Paul's conversion is something like a visually enhanced telling of the story of any conversion We've seen what happened to Paul and now we see what happens to the church. Chapter 2 of Ephesians falls nicely into two halves. Verses 1 through 10 and then verses 11 through 12. Both halves have roughly the same structure. Paul reminds them about who they were before Christ and the obstacles that stood between them and God and therefore us and God. And then Paul reminds them about how those obstacles were utterly overcome so that their circumstances were utterly overcome reversed by God through Christ. And I need to warn you that both sections here are like Bible doctrine nukes. You cannot get away from a number of crystal clear doctrines on God, human beings, sin, God's wrath, eternity, salvation, and the nature of the church. This text is famous for having Grabbed people, many of you have said, yes, Ephesians 2 is that text for me that did this. And keep grabbing people. There's always something new to turn over in this chapter. I pray there is for you. 
So how is the church a demonstration of God's power to Satan and the unseen powers that serve him, God's victory? Verses 1 through 10, God has brought the church from death to life. He has brought the church from death to life. Which sounds like a pretty fantastic enemy-defeating miracle to me. Listen to this huge, huge contrast. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, there is no way around it. The first three verses here are absolutely, terrifyingly negative. But thankfully, we don't want to go around it. As we'll see, there is huge payoff for staring at this hard reality in the face and agreeing with God on what he said. Here's how bad our situation was. Let's walk through it. Paul says in verse 1, you were dead, which is a pretty bad situation. This is not a predicament or a pickle or a phase or a rough patch. This is being dead. There's simply no better way to describe our default relationship to God spiritually than this. And death itself is a result of the entrance of sin into the world and the curse on us for it. So why did God consider us dead to himself? Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We hear the word sin and we may think of specific actions and thoughts. And it's true that sin includes actions and thoughts, but the Bible's portrait of sin is much deeper than that. Sin is as much the orientation of our whole life as death is the direction of our whole life. That's what Paul means when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's a way of life. He is saying, ever since Adam, this is our lifestyle. But more apparently needs to be said. And so Paul says more. He explains how bad this is and why we're this way by a series of controlling influences. And of course, we're all influenced in many, many ways from genes to diet to voting patterns to languages we speak and even the accents we speak with. We are all literally helplessly influenced by myriads and myriads of influences that are not even perceived by us. We walked in trespasses and sins, but whose map were we using for this walk? What well-worn paths were we following? We get our directions from three sources. First, 
in this walk of sin, we followed the course of the world around us. We followed the world around us. Verse 2, in our sin, we were following the course of this world. Our lives are shaped by the people around us and what they think and desire and do. The key characteristic of this world's course is that its horizon is time and not eternity, and its concern is self and not God. It does not factor in either God or eternity into its decisions about money, power, sex, relationships, work, or anything. The world is only concerned about the world. And what is the world? But the people in the world, people walking in sin, born in Adam. The influence of parents, of friends, and public figures, celebrities are absolutely powerful, sometimes for good, and in many, many ways for ill. And unless we're being shaped by Christ and influenced by him, then there is nothing stopping these forces from simply making us into their image. We are followers. If ever you were proud, you weren't like somebody else somewhere else, just consider what possibilities there would have been realized for you if you grew up in a different home with different parents in a different part of the world. We're all made from the same material as the world's most horrendous monsters. Monsters, after all, get their power from the people that give it to them. We followed the course of this world. Second, in this walk of sin, we followed the devil. In our sin, we, verse 2, were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. The devil, a personal being that seeks to influence the thoughts and feelings and decisions of you and me in opposition and antagonism to God and toward the grave. Hit delete on the image in your head of a red guy with horns and then copy and paste an image of a lion. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he says, be alert because you can't always tell he's there. And then you're gone. He stands behind all of the worldliness and false religion in our world as he did in the first century. He stood behind the false religion of these first readers in Acts 19 and 20, which we'll look at next week. We get the story of the dramatic scenarios in which these first Ephesians believers found themselves in, in a culture immersed in the worship of false gods. Describe a scene on the ground in Ephesus and the powerful hold these false gods had previously on them, and even still into their Christian lives. There was tremendous temptation. We'll see mobs break out at the threat that Christians made to the local economy by refusing to participate in this false worship. This was their life, and it was ultimately demonic. We followed the course of this world. We followed the devil, and third, in this walk of sin, we followed our own passions. In our sin, we were living, verse 3, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. If we can manage to get away from the world, and if we were able to manage to get away from the devil and his schemes, we would still have ourselves, our own heart to deal with. James says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth 
to death. The body and its desires are a problem. And our mind is a problem as well. We put it to work to serve our fleshly desires. You may be able to accomplish great feats with your mind in the course of your work. And yet you will employ your mind in the most irrational ways in service to insane corruption, worldly corruption, to serve your passions. We may be headed right off a cliff, but we don't want to hear a thing about it, even if we are staring it in the face. Eve thought the forbidden fruit was a delight to the eyes, even though God had said it would lead to death. She believed the lie of the devil that it would make her like God, and Adam followed his wife into sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil right there. And so here we are today. So my friends, what does all this mean? Well, it means we aren't born blank slates, a product merely of our environments. It means we aren't born basically good. We are born in God's image, marvelous creatures. But all of us, every part of us corrupt, even if we aren't as bad as we could be in the expression of sin. It means we don't merely make mistakes. It means we don't experience failures of judgment. Let us labor to describe ourselves accurately with biblical language and categories when it comes to sin. God doesn't hold back and he knows us. We commit our sins against God because our own appetites find the world's priorities and the devil's promises quite satisfying and we use our mind to explain to ourselves how everything is really just fine. And all of this leads to a consequence. Verse three, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Three hard words here, wrath. God has wrath toward us. It's not from spite or revenge and it's not arbitrary like much of our wrath and anger can be. That's why some might not trust God. They think of him, we may think of him like us. He's not like us. We should all, most of us, with no holy or righteous indignation and anger in a fallen world, things happen which should make us angry. God's wrath is perfect, perfectly in tune with what is right and good. It's even a function of his love for the good. The word nature is a difficult word. We deserve wrath all the way down. We are all guilty. Some of the language used here in these verses seems to signal a kind of slavery or control even. We were controlled by the world. We were influenced in a controlled way by the devil. But you can imagine a dog chasing a squirrel, maybe in a different part of the country. We even have squirrels here. You can imagine a dog chasing a squirrel. He is missile lock on that squirrel like a remote control. He will go where it goes, into the road where he is not to go, where he could die and know it tearing up the backyard into who knows where, jumping over cliffs to get it. And this is us in our sin. We are chasing these various things that have a grip on us, and yet we are the ones chasing. That word mankind is difficult. All of mankind under God's wrath. This is a universal reality. Someone has said that civilization is a thin crust covering the mouth of a volcano. Civilization is a thin crust covering the mouth of a volcano. 
parents, police, teachers, a system of justice are all factors, even if imperfect in every way, all factors in holding this delicate crust together. Remove one or several of these restraints and the thing blows. This is the story of all mankind east of Eden. This is what it means that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Death is a pretty big obstacle to life. And death to God is a pretty big obstacle to eternal life with God. It cannot be overcome by any person, much less the one who is dead. The dead don't move and the dead, my friends, don't care. And that we don't care, that we don't fear God, is sign enough that he's exactly right about us. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, did three things, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, with Christ, with Christ, with Christ. Without him, we are dead. But Jesus defeats death through his cross and resurrection. And he takes us with him if we're united to him. And he seats us in the heavenlies. God has reversed our situation. He has overcome the great obstacle between us through his son. And why would he do this? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what's in it for God. God, for all eternity, gets to show off how gracious and how kind he is to the likes of you and me who would not be alive but for his call. He loves showing off his grace and that is too good for us. And so verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, to be clear. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's of grace. That means you don't deserve it. There is nothing in us that we contribute to this reversal of our situation. God does it all. It comes to us by faith. That's not like some kind of payment in a transaction. If God gives us grace and we give him faith, think of faith like receiving a gift. He gives, we receive. Something even only we can do when our eyes are open to see the gift for what it is and ourselves for what we are. And friends, I hope that you're in on this. If you are not with Christ, in Christ this morning, then the description in these first three verses is a description of your current situation. Paul writes to those who were there and are not there. And you don't have to be there. If you're listening to the word of God this morning and are shaking for what you've heard and you agree with it, that is sign enough that God is at work. Because dead men don't care about this. Believe on Jesus by faith. Receive salvation by grace and give him all of the credit for it. Praise him for the grace that he will show you from now and to eternity, which he loves to show. And labor with all of us to display that grace even now. 
Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, says the psalmist. The church declares the grace of God, and her works below proclaim his workmanship, his handiwork. The church is God's masterpiece, made for the display of his grace. So in Christianity, we do not obey to earn salvation. That is quite impossible for dead people. We obey because we have been saved from a life of disobedience and its eternal consequences. We obey because it's what we were lovingly and mercifully and graciously made to do. Paul is saying to the church, remember who you were and remember what God did. You were dead, you're alive, you were children of wrath, you are now God's workmanship, you walked in trespasses and sins and now you walk in good works of the kind that God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. God is at the beginning and the end of our salvation, even in the good works that we perform in the life that we live to his glory, which is what that refers to. God did all of this and Satan knows exactly what it means. Sometimes I print the text out to songs before I come in here. This one I had to look up on my phone after we sang it to write down because I wanted to read it to you. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Can you say that? Hope that you can. Satan knows exactly what it means when a prisoner of his is let free. But there's another way in which the church displays the power of God to Satan and the unseen powers that serve him. Verses 11 through 22 reveal this to us. In the church, God has brought his people from hostility to unity. He's brought his people from hostility to unity. This section is structured roughly along the same lines as the section before it. Paul is saying, remember who you were before Christ and remember all that God has done for you in Christ. And yet, this second section is different in some obvious ways. The first half of chapter two has to do with the vertical and personal realities concerning us and God. The second half more with the horizontal realities between us and one another in the church. The first half with timeless realities concerning God, sin, and salvation, things that can be grasped by somebody who comes to the text fresh without any Bible knowledge, perhaps. The second half, the timeline of the Bible and how God brought that salvation to us. And for this reason, the first half is often a much beloved part of Scripture very early on in the Christian life, it was for me, but the second half required some years and work. In fact, I will confess, I taught this to students about 10 years ago now, and I skipped the second half of chapter two. I wasn't quite sure what to say about some things here. It was heavy, and it is still heavy. Um, But as my knowledge of scripture has grown, it's become more clear. 
and recognize that this letter was written to Gentiles, those without necessarily a Jewish background and knowledge of the scriptures, and yet Paul wanted them to hear this second half, though it's rich with Old Testament context, to know who they were in relationship to the salvation story. And so it is for us. In Church Anatomy 101, which was the first half of chapter 2, we talked about sin and wrath and grace and faith. And now in 201, we get some new vocabulary. Paul says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. By reminding them that they were known as the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, Paul's hinting here at a kind of antagonism that that existed between Jews and Gentiles. The circumcision by the so-called circumcision gets at a kind of condescension that was the spirit of the Jews toward the Gentiles. And there was deep division between the two parties, though it was not in keeping with God's heart for his people. Deep, deep division. God gave Abraham circumcision as a way of marking his people out from among the nations as a part of God's plan. But Israel used it as an excuse for deep hatred toward those on the outside in her worst moments. When Adam sinned against God, he blamed his wife. When Adam and Eve had two children, one killed another. And when their children populated the earth enough, it says in Noah's day that the earth was filled with violence which is to say that it seems like human beings in sin have a difficult time getting along together. And this was true of Israel with all of her privileges and knowledge and revelation of God. From our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our cities, to our nations, we turn differences of any kind, class, education, wealth, physical ability, ethnicity, into reasons for alienation. At our worst, we don't merely exclude one another, we enslave and even eliminate one another on the basis of these differences. We love uniformity. We hate unity. From our experience on the playground and the history of the world, we demonstrate a love for uniformity and a despising of unity. Even in the places that pride themselves the most, In diversity, there are the people and beliefs that are utterly unacceptable. But never was there a greater division between two groups than Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles were hostile toward Israel. Think of Pharaoh, after his firstborn were dead and all the plagues, still charges in rage after God's people knowing full well the power of their God. The blindness and hardness of the human heart is on display there. Think of the kings and armies in Canaan who knew perfectly well what God had done for Israel in parting the Red Sea. In feared and yet in rage attacked Israel only to lose. They would not surrender, but as Psalm 2 says, raged against God and his people, his anointed. But the Jews were guilty of a different kind of hostility, spiritual pride. William Barclay sums this up well. The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to refer 
help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. So the Mosaic law, which was intended to separate Israel out from the nations as a part of God's plan on the way to bringing about his Messiah, was never intended to be permanent, but a pointer. Paul refers this to this in verse 14 as a dividing wall of hostility. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances, something that was meant to point them in love toward God was meant, was actually propping Israel up in sin and boasting over other sinners in the world. But there were nonetheless real aspects of the Mosaic law that put Gentiles at real disadvantage. Gentiles were were separated from Christ, alienated from God's national people and strangers to his promises. They had no promise or expectation of a savior. You can imagine a bus, a salvation bus on a road. One bus and one road. You're not on it. You're actually on the other side of the world and don't know it exists. They were strangers, alienated from Christ and his God's plan through his people. This reality was represented in some concrete ways in Israel's life. For example, in the construction and operation of the temple that existed in the first century built by Herod. There were layers of spaces for different types of people. The court of the priests east of the, of the court of Israel, and then the court of women. These three courts were the same elevation as the temple, but then four steps down and a giant wall, and 14 more steps down and another giant wall. Behind that wall was the court of the Gentiles. No way in to the presence of God. Josephus, a first century historian, writes about this. He says the temple was encompassed by a stone wall for a partition with an inscription which forbade any foreigner to go in under pain of death. And Greek notices like this have been dug up by archaeologists. Simply put, Gentiles, verse 12, were without hope and without God in the world. All of us are dead in sin. We are not as though drowning and we only need someone to throw us a rope. We are actually dead at the bottom of the water and Christ dies for us, takes our place. Gentiles, if we could extend the illustration a little farther, are dead at the bottom of the ocean under an iceberg. That's what he's saying. This was your situation. Gentiles have many, many hopes Just none that last, none that deal with death and guilt. Gentiles were alienated from God and alienated from his people. And there are Gentiles in places in the world today without Bibles and the gospel who have the very same plight. These relationships were toxic where they existed between Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles and the Jewish God, the God of the Old Testament. Which is why in verse 19 through 22, we see something so amazing. So jump ahead there with me. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. From foreigners to citizens, from strangers to members of the same household, from hopeless and without God to the very dwelling place of God, his temple. And all of this together, exclusion to union, separation to reconciliation to God and to one another. How did it happen? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God neutralizes toxic relationships. He did it between sinners and himself, and he does it between sinners and sinners. So that there is no such thing as irreconcilable differences between Christians. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. And how in Christ Jesus has this come about? By his blood. And how did Jesus' blood do that? Well, with the vocabulary that we've built and the groundwork we've laid, I think we can just read verses 14 through 18 and get it. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." Listen to this promise of a Messiah from Isaiah 57, 19, when God promises one day to say, peace, peace to the far and to the near. You see, God's intentions through Israel for the far, the nations, was always a part of his plan. His original promise to Abraham was for Abraham and his children and that they would be a blessing to the nations. And exactly how that would work out was not certain, but that God's direction of his plan was. And now the mystery is revealed that in Christ, in God's new covenant, the Mosaic covenant now being obsolete, God creates one new race, one new humanity, Jew and Gentile, to display his multicolored wisdom the unseen forces of the world and to declare his victory over our former captor. Both need a cross. How is God's power demonstrated in the very existence of the church? That's how it's demonstrated in us together right here. We could be far more diverse in our makeup and united in our life together, but there's plenty to praise God for in this room is an outpost of heaven filled with people who would never hang out were it not for a cross. Blue collar, white collar, wealthy, and scraping by, educated and uneducated, old and young, Native American, African American, Caucasian, Hispanic, many, many others. 
people who wear ties and people who wear skinny jeans and people who wear ties with skinny jeans. <laughs> they are here too. The only explanation for this gathering of people is the cross of Christ and the power of God. There is nothing flashy about us. That is the main thing about us. We're here because God loves to show off his grace and that is the only reason. And all of this, Paul says in chapter 3, 11 through 12, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Which is why we should pray. And it's why Paul ended his third chapter by praying. Section 3, another prayer for God's power. Verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3. And like Paul's prayer at the end of, first and end of the first chapter, this is a prayer for God's power. We're going to pray this in a moment as we're closing the sermon. And as we pray, I want you to consider three things as we pray this prayer together. Consider who we're praying to. We are praying to God as Father. We were children of wrath, but now we are his adopted sons and daughters, a part of his household. Our sins made a separation between us and God, Isaiah says, so that he does not hear. But he hears and we have bold access because of Jesus. Consider who we're praying to. Consider who we're praying through. We pray through Christ and because of his blood. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. And consider what we're praying for. Deep, deep, internal, internal and not external things. Incredible things for an experience of Christ's love which is beyond our understanding and for an experience of Christ's power which is beyond imagination. May this be our greatest concern and desire for ourselves, the people around us in this room and our whole church. So look down at your Bibles or close your eyes. I'm going to pray Paul's prayer for us and we'll be done. For this reason, the incredible and powerful gospel of grace to sinners, we bow our knees before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power, through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask, or think according to the power at work within us. To you, Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>